0: Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, a conversation where good thoughts help renew the mind with the Word of God. I'm Charlie Carter, and I'm here with Tim Little and Andy Stearns. Let's jump into the conversation. Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast. This In this episode, man, words are tough. In this episode... I'm going to walk through a listener email that relates to the discipleship questions that we've been walking through. But before we do that, we have some thinklings business to tend to.
1: Books and business.
0: Let's talk about some books. And before we do that, we will say that it is unfortunate due to uh, Andy's uh, circumstances with his family, just the schedule, how it's unfolded this week. He is not here with us as we're recording this and we don't have a submission for him. But rest assured, he is reading and thinking and he will eventually eventually, talk about it with his friends.
1: <laughs> yes.
0: <laughs> so, Andy, we miss you. We'll see you soon. Praying for you. Uh, so I'm going to go first and uh, it, this last week has been Difficult for me to be kind of pushing through things that I should be reading. And so been, been a, a bad week of reading, you know, just my own laziness there. So uh, all that to say, I, I had a student ask me over this past weekend about a quote that I use in some classes. And it is from a book that we have mentioned multiple times before, which is The Intellectual Life, Its Spirit, Conditions and Methods by A.G. Sertéange. And, uh, I will just read. So that student was in my office and I pulled the book out and we looked at the quote. And, uh, so as I was getting ready to come over for recording, I was like, oh, let's use that. So, uh, here we are. And here we are. So what Sir Tejanj does really well is he's very quotable and I would categorize a lot of it as just practical wisdom. And so here's what he says. Uh, he's talking. So the the section of the book is the virtues of a Catholic intellectual. And so he's talking about characteristics of someone who has an intellectual life. And this first section is the common virtues. And so here's the quote, would there not be something repellent in seeing a great discovery made by an unprincipled rascal, the unspoiled instinct of a simple man would be grievously hurt by it. There is something shocking in a dissociation which dislocates the harmony of the human being. One has no faith in jewel merchants who sell pearls and wear none. So uh, that last- Yeah, you gotta
1: break that down. That was complex. Yeah,
0: the last sentence there is a nice illustration of what he's saying. Mm -hmm. So here's a jewel merchant. And he's like, hey, buy my pearls, buy my pearls. And you're like- why aren't you wearing any? Oh, don't worry about that. Just, just buy my pearls. And so that illustration, instead of a, so
1: it's like they're not genuine.
0: Not necessarily. So someone but you just who,
1: don't value wearing pearls yourself. So why would
0: so in the the correlation be- in the simile. So instead of a jewel merchant, it's an intellectual. Mm-hmm. Someone who is studying and thinking and hopefully coming up with grand ideas. Reading reading, etc. And they're like, Look at this great idea. And then you're like, Well, you don't do that. So why would you listen to him? Like right. why would you buy the pearls from a jewel merchant that he wouldn't uh, wouldn't wear himself? A right. very similar verse that talks about this. The hardworking farmer must be first to partake of the crops. A very similar idea. But what I really like about it, so he asked the question would you see a disconnection, would there, would there be a disconnection in your mind of someone who made a great discovery, but in reality was an unprincipled rascal? So someone wins a Nobel Prize and they're an absolute idiot. Yeah. And you'd be like, mm. and then his next sentence, the unspoiled instinct of a simple man would be hurt by it. So, someone who has no training, Mm -hmm. really no profound thinking at all, would look at that, an Mm -hmm. unprincipled rascal making a great discovery, and Mm -hmm. be like, "Mm, something's off
1: here. Right. Did this guy really make this discovery?
0: Yeah. And so, what he's, so you can see he's trying to exalt character uh, not being an unprincipled rascal. Like, if you want to be an intellectual, Virtue does become important to you.
1: Mm -hmm. Why?
0: Well, a simple man would understand the connection between principle and organization and diligence and a great discovery. Mm -hmm. To put it another way, you'd have a problem buying pearls from a jewel merchant who doesn't like to wear them himself. Or, you know, I'm not going to use gender inclusive language. (laughs) Himself. (laughs) So that's my book, uh, a quote, great quote. So I I share that at the beginning of a semester. I usually put it in an early PowerPoint of my Hmm. classes and I remind the students that they're in fact students and actually in the eyes of our internal revenue service, they are a full-time student and they get tax benefits for being one so that they might want to take that seriously, like actually devoting time to being a full-time student. And then I share that quote. And by the way, we would all recognize the uh, discord between you making a great discovery if you don't learn to be diligent. Mm -hmm. So great quote, great quote.
1: Yeah, as a bookstore manager, I've had a few employees that have looked and see what I do, and they're like, You're a bookstore manager. Shouldn't you read books? (laughs) (laughs) But actually, it's kind of hard to read books because guess what you're doing? You're too busy selling them or (laughs) emailing or promoting or whatever else. But anyway, I do read some books, and I'm going to share about a couple. one want one just give you an update on Song of Songs for Singles. Uh, We did finish the typesetting, and we finished indexing it, a scripture index at the back. It's currently in the proofreading stage. So we actually have like a book you can print. I've printed it off a copy, and it's being uh, edited. Uh, We just finished the front and back cover today, I think and uh and so uh, i'll be registering the isbn here pretty soon uh, and we'll be able to take pre-orders pretty soon so we'll keep you posted on that Um, so there's that book and now there's this other book and that is non-toxic masculinity recovering healthy male sexuality by zachary wagner Uh, this is a new title from intervarsity press so um there's been a lot of talk a lot of talk about toxic mas- masculinity in our culture. I taught a Old Testament theology class a while ago, I don't know it was like 2 years, 3 years ago, and one of the students wanted to write on biblical masculinity. I was like, "Okay, go for it." And uh, this was before it was before this whole idea of toxic masculinity really was uh, taking off. So, um now now they The Christian subculture is writing on it. What is toxic masculinity? Um, He's got a quote here where he seeks to define it, which I think is kind of actually a difficult thing to define. But anyway, he states, Toxic masculinity describes men and boys who are emotionally repressed, egotistical, macho, and immature. It produces and perpetuates a male sexuality characterized by erotic conquest, entitlement, objectification of women, violence, and lack of self-control. So it at least gives a definition of masculinity, toxic masculinity, which we might be able to work with. Uh, but this idea of emotional, emotionally repressed is like this this uh, um, rejection of the feelings, this stoicism, like, oh, I'm tough, and... I don't feel. Um, And then some of these other things though are highly connected. This is one of the things I've noticed are very connected to sexuality and a man's relationship to a woman. So as far as toxic masculinity is concerned, I'm still figuring out what the world is going on with it. But that is one connection that uh, Wagner in this book, he even strongly highlights. He interacts with uh, purity culture extensively. And so what is a man's relationship to a woman. Um, how does a man view a woman? Uh, and, and he talks about biologically men are bigger. They are stereotypically stronger, uh, than a woman. Well, with that strength, what is he going to do with it? And I don't think biblical masculinity is that complicated personally. Um, and I think what Wagner might do is overcomplicate things quite a quite a bit. But what he says uh, on the purity movement, I, I found uh, something I want I thought I could share. First of all, he does mention the adjuration refrain and connects it to the purity movement, which was interesting to me because I did not hear many purity movement speakers refer to the Song of Songs, but he evidently did. He he states on page. 28. I thought a lot as a teenager about the refrain of Song of Songs, do not awaken love before it's time. So uh, he he identified that, which I thought, hey, wow, well, great. So what did you do with that? The problem was he realized that this just wasn't working. Uh, so his struggle with purity uh, continued. He's like, I seem to have awakened something I shouldn't. Uh, So I'll read on page 29, he writes, Keep it all under wraps, and you'll increase your chances of making it into a marriage with your purity intact. Though my mind assented to purity culture's logic, my adolescent body wasn't so sure. And because I couldn't keep my body asleep, I hated my body. So I thought that was an interesting connection that he made he picked up on the terminology of do not stir up or awaken love but then he connected it to well this isn't working so then he hates his body because he's not able to let love sleep and I'm just like, I think you missed a few things along the way here. This idea of awakening love uh, should be something that each Christian young man, and it's more directed towards Christian young woman, should pursue. It's a pursuit to not awaken love. Um, and, and so what about with your body? It's not cooperating. Well, this gets into this whole idea of cultivating the affections. We do the things that we love. What is our heart's desire our heart does what we want, so we need to reshape. We need to change our loves. We need to change our desires. So that gets into just uh, some of the conversations we had Scott Annual on the podcast a while back, and um, I'm not going to get into all of that connotation. But so much, so often, we have this this uh, um, this high view of sexual purity, but then there's like this. I can't do it. It's impossible, and then people give up, and and so Wagner actually interacts a little bit with this high and low. In fact, on page fifty five, he he uh, makes a statement: the church often manages to set both a pathetically low and an impossibly high bar for masculine sexuality, which I thought a little ironic considering his condescension of the adjuration refrain earlier. The adjuration refrain sets a high bar on sexual purity. That's what it does. And that's what each Christian young person should seek to pursue. They should seek that level of purity. Um, But then what about this pathetically low? Well, that's where you get into, well, I just can't. I give up. And then they give up. And and no, you don't give up. You recognize that. You And this gets into the discipleship questions and stuff that Charlie has talked about where you acknowledge that you sin and you repent and you walk in newness of life, recognizing that you are forgiven and you continue to pursue purity, make necessary changes in your life so that that purity can be maintained. And what are those changes in our life? That's where I think we get into the pathetically low and the impossibly high. Uh, Too many people are indulging the world system for, I don't know, what, five hours a day, and for some reason they struggle with purity. Boy, I wonder why, when you've been drinking the wrong Kool-Aid, for the majority of the day, every single day, and so you can kind of see that a little bit in Wagner's testimony here, that that imbibing the world's um, the world's uh, Gatorade, and that that's the cause and why we can't seem to let love sleep. Uh, the world is constantly telling us to awaken love. So overall, um, I'm only halfway through the book, but I wanted to kind of do just a longer review of it. Uh, he talks about the oversexualization of women and women's clothing and what an issue women's clothing is, uh, was during the purity movement. And he even talks about the Billy Graham rule, which this is the third author I've read that really has abhorred the Billy Graham rule, which in my opinion, seemed to be wise. Uh, the Billy Graham rule is you're not gonna, you're not gonna have dinner with, uh, um, somebody of the opposite sex. Uh, It's a wisdom principle, that's all it is. So you avoid uh, any kind of appearance of evil. Um, But what that, according to Wagner and others, what that does is it it dehumanizes women and views them as a sexual object. Um, And so I'm like, I don't think so. I think you're just trying to... Uh, Billy Graham and then Mike Pence, uh, who's brought it to light recently, are seeking just to live holy lives that are above reproach. And that's something we should all seek to do. So that's my book, Zachary Wagner, Non-Taxic Masculinity. I'm halfway through. I'll finish it up and talk about it again probably next week.
0: I think I'm not muted. Yeah, I'm not muted. Okay. Yeah, so a thought I had there as you were walking through that is, so again, a conversation with some students earlier today where we were we were, this will be a nice segue to discipleship. So we were talking about discipleship And we were talking about how often when we say disciple or discipleship, we have in mind a one-on-one meeting, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Would you say that's fair? Yeah. However, we were brainstorming and I was like, well, what discipleship in our local churches happens every week that is exclusively corporate? Right. And to think about those things. And so like discipleship is happening when there's preaching, Right. And that's not one-on-one. No. Like you are being discipled if you just go and you participate in the worship service mm-hmm. of your church. And this is, you know, you mentioned Scott, friend of the program, and we need to have him on here again. That'd be yeah. awesome.
1: He has his new book coming out.
0: And uh, so a big part of that discipleship, which is corporate, is the music. And like what other activity is affection shaping for every person in the church at the same time. Uh, wh- what other activity accomplishes that like congregational singing? Mm-hmm. And so, and you had mentioned like, what would you expect if you drink out of the world's hose, you know, you're, you're going to have that. And so right. uh, just think about what's happened in our churches. There's been a real recognition of how people don't like certain forms of music. And so there's this whole big push for, and I'm air quoting, to be relevant, and that includes different instruments, it includes different songs, it includes different modes and methods of music, um, and uh, that all affects us, and that's with an A, you know, if it impacts your affections, and you know, so that is true in that battle for sexual purity. But you just think in in the conversation of discipleship, what activity do our churches participate in that is meant to stir and cultivate the right affections in an entertainment zone like music, you know, and, uh, you know, we just go back and just listen to what we talked about with Scott on the first podcast, but music in the church was never meant to be entertaining.
1: Right. In fact, it was a cappella until what, 1000 AD?
0: Yeah. Like they they didn't sing songs at church because people liked them. It was a means of preserving truth and stirring affections for the truth. Mm-hmm. And so when, the moment you start asking the question of entertainment relevance, you've lost the battle. Um, but then, so there's obviously many other things outside of music that war uh, for our affections and, you know, you know, you insert any type of entertainment and you could have the same issue crop up. But so I thought, I thought that was an interesting thing you are talking about. And, um, I think it's right. You know, like you think about how your affections get manipulated, but mm. anyway, I mean, maybe manipulated is more like victim language because you are culpable for it. Like you shouldn't right. allow your affections to be, for things that they shouldn't be for. But anyway, so I like that discussion that you were on the brim of and we'll come back to it another time. But so while we're talking about discipleship and even while we're thinking about one-on-one discipleship, I'd like to read a an email that we received a while back. And uh, I think this might capture a, a nice conversation that many of us could have or a problem that we might encounter if we do eventually disciple. And in this sense, I am referring to one-on-one discipleship. So here's the email. Uh, I'm not going to read the full thing, but they, they express some sentiment about, uh, so I'll say, read this as I disciple others through trials and seek to point them to the purposes of God through these trials. So, you could think back through some of the earlier dis- discipleship questions. Why does God allow a trial? What is he trying to show me in my heart? How am I supposed to respond when I see my flesh at work? So uh, we start thinking that through. As, and he says, as I'm discipling others through that, how can I protect uh, himself, myself, from the first person? How do I protect myself from becoming one of Job's friends? Someone just trying to pinpoint any sin that I think God might be trying to reveal through a trial. I found myself doing that a couple of weeks ago and had to ask forgiveness of the person because I believe my methods discouraged or confused them. What do you guys think? Thank you. So that's what Tim and I are going to talk about. <laughs> yeah. So what, what's your initial initial thoughts.
1: Uh, well it's a, a live live practical counseling situation so my initial response is <laughs> we're not there and so we don't want to be armchair calling counselors. Yeah. Um but the the sentiment that you share is something that I think Charlie and I both have uh, gone through and have experienced and that we don't want to be jobs friends. Um but recognizing a sovereign hand of God that brings trials into our lives for a vast assortment of reasons. What was the chief reason why Job, Job's friends were accusing Job? What accusations were Job's friends making of Job? He had sinned. Mm -hmm. And so um, when we think through Job and and, uh, this is just initial thoughts. So, you know, this is a podcast and brainstorming and stuff, but Initial thoughts are, you know, are you accusing somebody of sin and that God has brought trial into their lives, into that person's life because they sinned? Well, that would be correlative with Job. Um, A lot of times, though, I see trials in my life. It's not because of some direct sin that's in my life. I did X, so I get Y. Instead, uh, a lot of times it's just, boy, you know what? I was home all day with the kids yesterday and, um, this is true. I was home with my kids all all day yesterday. I was a little bit under the weather and there wasn't a lot going on on campus. And after a little, after a while, guess what? They start to eat at me (laughs) and you know, this frustration and these feelings and things are getting inside of me that are going. And it's like, what is that? That is the flesh. Yeah. And so being able to identify that fleshly response in myself and then uh, responding appropriately and mm-hmm. analyzing, acknowledging it, confessing, and then seeking to walk in the spirit and not fulfill the lust of the flesh. You know What, what did God do by allowing that situation to materialize in my life? he exposed that I'm not as good as I think I am. And when I'm sitting mm-hmm. in my office working on stuff where nobody's around or bugging me, I can get a lot done, but yeah, put a few, you know, thorns in my side and something bad materializes in there. So that's a little different than nobody was accusing me of, of sin.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So,
1: so those are my initial thoughts. Your turn tag.
0: Yeah. So Uh, there's, there's a couple of things first, um, for the, for the person who sent the email and I'm trying to preserve anonymity. I'm not sure if if they would mind one way or the other, but, uh, I will say what you did is correct. Uh, in the sense that you, you know, God prompts you that, Hey, this was wrong. You should go ask for forgiveness. Uh, so you do that.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Right. And
0: by the way, what is that? You know, that is a trial in this counselor's life. Yeah. Uh-huh. And had you not responded properly to that trial in your life,
1: mm-hmm. what
0: would have stopped the production of the glory of God? Mm-hmm. Like, if you aren't willing to humble yourself and say, "Hey, when I said that, you know, that wasn't kind. That wasn't loving. I was wrong. Will you forgive me?" If you're not willing to do that probably shouldn't be counseling in the first place. (laughs) So, um, so that, that is, I think I, I, I want to say the word admirable. Um, but I don't, I don't want to communicate like, you know, like, you know, undue attention to the person's action, but like Mm -hmm. that, that's just what you're supposed to do. You know, that is the right course of action. And that will happen. That will absolutely happen. Just as the, Counselee, the disciple is sinful and will have issues getting revealed. As you disciple them, you will be, uh, you will see things revealed about yourself as you interact with other people. And Uh I think this is actually uh, interesting to hear your thoughts on this, Tim. But I would say anecdotally, because it's my own experience, that uh, I often see issues in my own life as I'm trying to counsel other people. Oh, yeah. And you you kind of have this, like, hypocr- uh, <laughs> I, w- I want to say hypocrisy, but I, I almost said hypocryphal. <laughs> 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 you have this, like, uh, it kind of works, hypocryphal thinking um, about yourself. Like, how can I tell them this right now when I know my own heart? Like I'm, I'm just as bad, you know? And again, I think that's good. Mm -hmm. And it's the person who's not willing to admit that and stay in confession and yielding to the spirit that you would not want to counsel. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of our best counselors, uh, and we would maybe throw some names around, um, you know, I know who I'm thinking of. They would never uh, consider themselves like perfect or like, I've got it figured out. Um, and what's the characteristic of them? (laughs) They're very humble, gentle people. And that's not because they are any less sinful, but I think that's that they're willing to confess sin when they see it and and handle things the right way. So I think that's a good thing.
1: Yeah. Um, (laughs) what were, yeah, I lost my train of thought. Okay. Well, I I, I'll keep finger. going.
0: and Maybe it comes back to you. So right along oh, line. with,
1: I got it. Boom. So the whole thing with, you know, how you're counseling and then when, when you're trying to disciple somebody, you are being discipling yourself too, because what you're telling somebody else to do, you then need to do yourself. I have brought this up on multiple occasions in my discipleship class that I teach. And even as I talk to some of the men in our church, just like you, who are you, who are you discipling? So you started out with this whole thing about discipleships more than just one-on-one even though that's how we mm-hmm. often think of discipleship. Discipleship is the local church sitting in the the uh, sitting under the preaching of God's word, but on a one-on-one basis when you are investing in somebody else's life, that person is investing in you too. So if you even if you aren't discipling somebody, if there's not somebody that you're meeting together with and asking them, "Hey, what is God doing in your life?" then um, I would encourage you even to do that. It's not just for that person. It's for yourself. Yeah. Uh, it'll be sanctifying for you in that process.
0: Okay. So uh, I think we've, we've kind of batted around some of the ideas. I want to get to the specific question that's being asked. So the specific question is, how can I protect from being one of Job's friends just trying to point out sin? And when, when God... Just just trying to point out the sin that God is revealing to them through the trial and by the way I don't think it's hard to do that uh and, and when I say hard to do that I mean to point out sin like I think you know, we have the word of God and we know like hey pride is wrong and oh that's that's not right it, it's not hard if someone is open and sharing with you to be like mm-hmm. Oh, I see that. I see that. It's not hard.
1: Yeah, but you have a lot of practice with it too. Some of us, it's a little harder for us.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, some connecting some of the dots. But the point being, um, so then uh, I don't think the issue is like like we have to search like this really long search for like what the issue is. Like uh, I think God's word really illumines and helps us like when someone's going through a trial, I think if you... Uh, as you're spending that time with them, you're having that conversation with them, I think you will see what's going on. The issue becomes then, how does that get revealed to the person? So do you just tell them, hey, you're prideful. (laughs) No. Do you, so, so, you know, and there might be a time for that. And I would call that like, rebuke or confrontation. And we do have instruction in God's word that there are times when that is how we should do that. And, uh, I think for example, it's like first Thessalonians five, where, uh, there are some that you rebuke, but you're still patient. You, you still it doesn't mean you get the right to be angry or upset with them, but you, in a patient way, you confront like, no, that's wrong. You can, that's on the table. That's an option, but there are other options too. And specifically, you know, when you talk about discouraging someone, you know, how, how would the realization of sin be discouraging to someone? And, uh, that can be a good thing or a bad thing. And what I mean by that is if someone's in sin, you know, doing fleshly things, there is a sorrow of like, oh, that's bad. And that can very quickly be redirected to, oh, you shouldn't have told me that way that I was wrong. Right. How dare you tell me I'm prideful?
1: Right. You yeah. know?
0: And they're like compounding the pride with like, well, you were wrong to tell me that way. Mm-hmm. And um it can it can become Not always, but it can become a means of Mm self-justification that they're not, uh, they don't have to hold a certain standard because you did it the wrong way. And a man, I have heard that. Oh yeah. Like, oh, well, yeah, I, I know what you're saying is true, but you should have never done that. And so like they're. They're using the way that you told them about something,
1: mm-hmm. the way you conversed with them, mm-hmm. the way you communicated truth to excuse their own sinfulness. Exactly.
0: And so when that happens, what do I think is still appropriate? Patient rebuke. <laughs> um, and so you could have that. You could be very patient and you could discern, and that's a key word here, you could discern that they actually need a firm, like, no, this is, this is wrong. And you can do that the right way. And because they are reacting in the flesh, they will react to you and you will feel like, oh man, maybe I shouldn't have. And sometimes you, sh- you did it exactly right. Mm-hmm. Now we've already covered, like if you actually did get like sinfully upset or, um, uh, impatiently, uh, you know, confrontational, Mm -hmm. uh, you can provoke people to react in a fleshly way by interacting with them in a fleshly way. And if Mm -hmm. God shows you that and it's wrong, then asking for forgiveness is the right way. Mm -hmm. So there's a couple options there. What if it's not time for a rebuke? Mm -hmm. What if you want to really gently lead them down Mm -hmm. the road
1: well, don't you normally just let them see it in the word? That's when, that's how you normally go about it. You don't usually start out with like a, yep, hey, you sinned,
0: and so, uh, so that that's a really good point. Uh, always directing them back to, well, what is what is what does it say? And uh, there's there's a couple of ways to approach that, but I think ultimately, you can say the same thing. But you can present it differently and it will be received differently. Mm -hmm. What I mean by that is, I can say, you're prideful. Or I can say, if you had to describe that using a biblical word, what would you say? Now, the key there is I'm asking a question. Right. I'm not accusing, I'm asking a question. And I think that is the primary tactic to guard yourself from being impatient and unkind. And it actually trains you to be patient because they won't always answer the way that you think they're going to answer. Now you don't want to lead the witness. Uh, that's not okay in the courtroom and it's not okay in discipleship. You don't want to ask a question that's like intentionally trying to trap them. That's not what I'm going for here. But I think if you consulted a number of counseling uh, gurus like Ed Trip, you know, to to name one like Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. He is it Ed Trip?
1: Ted. Paul. Ted. Ted. Or uh, Paul? Yeah, Paul Trip. Paul Trip. Uh, yeah. Where
0: did I? Oh, I was thinking Ed Welch. That's what yeah. I was thinking. Another great counseling guru. Mm-hmm. But I think if you consulted them, they would talk about the the utilization of questions and not accusing someone, mm-hmm. and that way they are seeing it for themselves. They're, they're arriving at the conclusion rather than you feeding it to them. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is true in other areas in life too. If you tell someone to do something, typically people don't like to be told what to do. And uh, whole marketing campaigns are built on this, like that you discover what's the, the new, nice, good way. And because you discovered it, you're more apt to make the decision but if someone like forces it on you, pe- they know like people won't respond to that type of involvement. So I think to just get to the heart of the question here, how do you avoid from being someone that just points out sin and discourages someone? Well, I think you can hone the art of asking good questions and, uh, you know, of course, the guy who is writing a book called Twelve Questions uh, would say that, right? Um, but I think the way that you prompt the uh, discussion is very important. And asking someone, "Well, what does what does God's word say about that?" Like, could you describe that using biblical words? You know, like that's that's a, a question I use all of the time. <laughs> like, okay. So in that moment, if you wanted to do, if you would do what you wanted to do, what would that have looked like? And okay, if you would have chosen that, what would the Bible say about that? And letting, letting them kind of answer the question and well, what, what passages would you maybe go to, to address that and, and letting them kind of. Take the self guided tour, and the prompts are your questions.
1: And then realize too that some people don't have eyes to see and ears to hear or heart to know. Mm-hmm. So, and when they don't have the eyes to see, the ears to hear, the heart to know, they can't put the word of God into application into their life. Yeah. That's when I don't know if there's a point in rebuking that person.
0: Sure. And, and th- that sounds a lot like Proverbs. Yeah. The scoffer. Mm-hmm. And uh, you, you, um, well, I guess maybe not the scoffer. Maybe you'd say the fool because mm. you rebuke the scoffer that the fool may learn. Something like that. Did I get that right?
1: You beat the scoffer that the simple.
0: There, that the simple learn. There we yeah.
1: go.
0: Mm. Yeah. I knew I was in the right
1: ballpark. <laughs> you were.
0: But so I think that is a, a big method is when you're having these types of conversation, there, there there is a reason why it's 12 discipleship questions. You sit down with someone, and so you know, you could just walk right through them. Someone's explaining a scenario to you, something that happened in their life, a trial that God brought into their life, and you could say, "Well, what was what was God's will in that? Mm-hmm. Like, what was He trying to accomplish?" And well, I don't know. Well, that's an opportunity for some knowledge you can teach. Like, well, how does God use trials? Do there any passages that talk about that? And you start and eventually when a, a disciple has learned like a Deuteronomy 8, a James 1, they're like, Oh, well God, God allowed that to transform me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how does God transform someone? What, what's so special about a trial? And again, opportunity for instruction and repetition, but Oh, he's trying to reveal something in me mm-hmm. about my affections or my motives, my loves. And so, You can frame that whole conversation in question as opposed to accusation. Now, that being said, I do think there is a time when we just have to, in the words of my dad, call spade a spade and just say it. You know, and and that's something I I think because I'm a people pleaser, I, I I care too much at times what people think of how I'm interacting with them. And so I won't say things. Bluntly, I'm trying to like, you know, ease the, the burden of what I'm about to say to someone. I think there's appropriate times for that. And I think there are inappropriate times for that. There are times when what is necessary is a very clear, open statement of what is true and what is not true.
1: Would that connect to maybe somebody's position of authority over the other person? I could just see that situation arising more in yeah. a familial father to son or church pastor uh, to uh...
0: Is it I can't remember if it's 1 Timothy or 2 Timothy but there is a command there to not rebuke an older man.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I think it's to Timothy. So you mm-hmm. think about Timothy as a as a pastor mm-hmm. don't rebuke an older man. It's it's a respect and authority issue. Mm-hmm. Um and so, uh, you know, and that, that's a conversation that maybe we could, uh, go down the rabbit hole sometime where, um, you know, discipleship often follows the lines of authority where like we typically disciple people, you know, disciple mm-hmm. one-on-one, we meet with people who are younger than us, mm-hmm. or at least in a sense, why do they need discipled by me? There's like a, a gap and we're trying to bring them along, um, what happens when it's role reversal? You know, you're discipling someone who's 20 years older than you, which every pastor has that phenomena. So what do you do in that moment? Well, maybe it's not appropriate to like get in a guy's face and tell him, you know, you're prideful. You need to repent. (laughs) Um, But uh, so I think to kind of cap the whole idea, there's not an exact right or wrong. And when there's not an exact right or wrong, what do we need to help make the decision?
1: Sorry, I was thinking of something else.
0: Uh, Okay, so when when there's not a spelled out right or wrong, Mm -hmm. and I have to make a decision on something that's not Mm black-white...
1: We have to have wisdom.
0: You have to have wisdom. You have to discern. Mm. Not... uh, You're going to have similar circumstances, but never exact circumstances. Mm -hmm. It's never like, oh, this is the exact same counseling scenario as the last one. Everyone's a little different. And so you have to be able to express discernment in those moments to make the correct decision of what to say. And we have a couple of really nice guides to help us do that. Mm -hmm. One, the beginning of wisdom.
1: It's the fear of the Lord.
0: Fear the Lord. So I'm not going to be more concerned about what they think than what God thinks. And I need to do and say what would be honoring and glorifying to him, what he's told me in his word, which also I think implies that I'm yielded to him. And so you could enter into the whole conversation here, like walk in the spirit. Am I being loving? Am I being peaceful? Am I being kind and patient? Am I exhibiting self-control? And then you could kind of flip those on the other side and if you know the action would look like it's unloving, unkind, impatient. Hmm, where's that come from? But so I think that uh, really is the nice cap to the whole thing. There, there is no direct, always do this, never do that. It's wisdom, mm-hmm. and the start of that is to fear the Lord, and then the continuing of that is uh, a lot of things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, listen to what the word says, uh, walk in the spirit, all, all those things. But I would say my main guard in those types of scenarios is to make sure that I'm, unless, dict, unless it is necessary, it's dictated to not accuse, but to ask a question. Any closing thoughts on that?
1: Tim? I think that's great wisdom advice. As we see even in the book of Proverbs, the father is leading the son along the way. He doesn't want the son just to do what he says. He wants the son to actually believe it, internalize it for himself. And with questions, we can help help the ones whom we're talking to, um, to do that very thing.
0: All right. We will see you guys next week. We won't see you, but you'll listen to us, which is kind of seeing. Anyway, See you next time on the Thinklings Podcast.